The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky connections and kinky education. We're kinky done differently. What women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun discussion about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy, as well as an intimate discussion about how to connect with our own authentic self, with questions asked by a guy. And now, here is your host, John, or as we call him around here, Hi there, Catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, a show about how people connect with each other and to their authentic selves. I'm John, also known as Hi There, Catsuit, and today we visit with a wonderful human who wants to take the world of sex education and turn it right on its queer. ASEC. Certified sexuality educator Phoenix Mandel has been a sexuality educator and consultant since 2006, delivering workshops on BDSM, sex and body positivity, ethical non-monogamy, and LGBTQIA+, along with other areas of sexual health and sexual rights. Phoenix teaches classes internationally and currently resides in Los Angeles. They have an intersectional and activist approach with a mission to make sex education more queer. It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it the first five. First time the word they meant something special to you. Oh, I could take that in so many different directions. Well, the first one that came to mind is I had a I had an unusual ind- individuality explosion in my in my freshman year of college, and everyone sort of has that. But I am an identical twin, and when you're an identical twin, you grow up very much as a we and an us and a they, and then you have to learn how to be an I and a me. And then maybe you get into committed partnership and you have to learn how to be a they and a we and an us again, but also with the lens of you have another person who has that claim on you forever. And many people, it's, it's the other direction, right? They start as an I and a me and, and just have a clear road to what the, the, what the we, they, us thing looks mm-hmm. like. Um, so I would say that the first time they was used to, to group me in with people I, I felt chosen by or felt that I had chosen it was kind of the first special they. Um, but of course, the second one I, that came to mind is with my pronouns, which are they, them. And that's a much more recent special they um, just in the last three years or so, three or four years. And the first time that someone gendered me correctly and used my pronouns without any Oh, um, excuse me. Actually, it's uh, that was a really special big deal moment for me. First time you felt truly understood for who you were. Hmm. You know, it's so tricky with that one because those moments feel like they they occur in these energetic liminal spaces, but then they don't last. I, I will say the first time I ever did a BDSM play scene, I, I felt like I was being shown parts of myself that I didn't even know existed. And somehow this other person knew me, knew who I really was more than I did. Um, and that was a pretty fabulous experience to have going in to a kink community and, and play. I think you read my mind first time you ever stepped into a BDSM play scene and your (laughs) thoughts going in? Uh, So as a freshman in college, I was 18 years old, legal age, and uh, 
I went to an event, a sex education event at my sister's school, and that event had a BDSM component, which was just shocking and outrageous. It's, it's really a very conservative school for that. Um, and I sort of connected with the instructors of that section of the event. And I went home with them afterwards for extra credit. And that's sort of how my first scene came about. Extra credit, I'll have to remember that one. That is amazing. First time you were taught sex education and did you believe you were getting the right information? So I was homeschooled um, for some of the some of the earlier formative grades because my family lived on a boat during that period of my life. So my mom, I don't remember my mom doing any sex ed type schooling with us. She was our, our homeschool teacher, other than, you know, basic hygiene kind of things. The first sex education I remember receiving was part of a, a health class in, you know, whatever junior high or, or late middle school where they sort of combine all these different components. And it was not very comprehensive. Uh, and even though there were lots of sex things that I thought were gross at that time, like I was horrified by the concept of blowjobs when I was a, when I was a tween. Um, now, now I like them just fine. But at the time <laughs> I was like, you do what with your what? Oh my God. Uh, it was not, it was not great sex ed. And there was a lot of unlearning that I've had to do in my in my journey um, just as, as a sex positive person and also in my journey um, as a sexuality educator, which is my main, which is my profession now. So there is a lot of introspection and unlearning and uh, I do a ton of work with folks around undoing some of the damage of uh, lack of good information, of uh, the lack of good information at the not comprehensive, not science-based, um, sort of fear-focused sex education that so many people receive in our country. First time you ever received an unsolicited dick pic and your reaction to it. It's definitely at some point in high school. I, I think I think the first time I was really kind of just shocked. Like I knew this was a theoretical thing that people did or that happened to people out in the world. Um, but it just seemed like such, such an outrageous, rude, counterintuitive, like not gonna get you the thing that you want. Like it just made zero sense to me. And so I'm like, yeah, sure. Some immature men, blah, blah, blah. And then I got one and I was like, what is happening? <laughs> It just, it kind of blew my mind and not in a good way. Uh, and I've had a lot of interesting conversations and discussions with folks since in terms of the, the correct way to send a dick pic. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and review. We really appreciate your feedback. Hi, I'm Dr. Allison Ass, trauma-informed sex and intimacy coach and educator and the founder of TurnOn.Love. And I teach a wide range of workshops and courses on topics including flirting and seduction, deepening emotional intimacy, expanding pleasure, exploring fantasies, repairing ruptures in relationships, navigating non-monogamy, and more. And I work with individuals and couples in a coaching dynamic to support them in getting out of their heads and into their bodies and navigating challenges like erectile dysfunction and anorgasmia to help men figure out how to express their desires in ways that feel authentic and not let opportunities pass by any longer, to help women explore what they want and really advocate for it in their relationships, and to support couples in getting the spark back and in exploring non-monogamy if you want to open up your relationship. To explore all this and more, you can check out my website at www.turnon.love. And don't forget to listen to my episode of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. It's in the archives wherever you listen to your podcast. 
Hello, I'm Jessie Sage from Peep Show Media. Peep Show Media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry. Be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays, porn reviews, events, interviews, news stories, and more. Also, make sure to listen to our podcast, The Peep Show Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. And for a bit more of a personal glance into my life, make sure to check out my January 15th interview on what women and other wonderful humans want. It is simply the most powerful episode we've ever done. When when I had the death of the ego and I really, well, I walked away from what a, being a kink educator or a dominatrix means to my ego or what being a singer um, or someone who booked educators or cover bands for so many years, what does that say about me? That's just things I've done. It's not who I am, you know, and the important thing is that we help others and that we be of service. So if someone's listening to this show and they're feeling maybe badly about a job they have or a direction they've taken, there's no mistakes. The artist formerly known as Hudsey Hahn, Hudsey Brook, June 8th, on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Welcome back to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. Here again is our host, John, or as we know him, hi there, catsuit. Phoenix Mandel is a certified sexuality educator, concentrating in workshops in BDSM, sex and body positivity, ethical non-monogamy, and LGBTQIA+, along with areas of sexual health and sexual rights. You've already heard me mention that in the bio as we led into the episode, but here is what I ask as far as this question is concerned. Of all of those things I just mentioned, which is the most misunderstood? Oh, it's the impossible question time, I see. That's very naughty of you. <laughs> hmm. It depends on by whom. If we're talking about the average member of the general public, I would say probably sex and body positivity because people have a much more, you know, it's that Dunning-Kruger effect. They're much more sure that they know lots about that when actually there's some misinformation happening there than in these other arenas where they may have strong opinions or hold many prejudices or um, have an aversion or what have you, or a titillation, it goes both ways, but they don't think they already know everything there is to know about that thing. So I would say for the general public, your average John and Jane Doe, it's gonna be body, body and sex positivity. For folks who are identified with any of these communities, I would say that there, that I feel like there's the most um, external pressure and force and minority stress being put on this group and also the most internal division within well, I was going to say ethical non-monogamy because that just seems so clearly that, but mm -hmm. actually maybe within uh, LGBTQIA plus communities. I'm going to say that one. <laughs> they all they all are broadly uh, marginalized in some way, misunderstood mm -hmm. in some way, and not accounted for in the way that we train our helping professionals to help people in, in the way we structure our society. And all of those are very impactful on people who hold those identities or are living um, whatever lifestyle version of that it, that speaks to them. And this is the method to my madness. I wanted to spin the wheel to see what we were going to talk about first. So let's start with sex and body positivity. I have had many amazing women and other wonderful humans on the show, raising, ranging in size, shape. I am going to, in the month of June, have Siri Dahl, who is a adult film performer, current 
educator, current advocate for many uh, sex positive industries, and one hell of a power lifter. Nice. I am going to have Shannon Seeley, who is a, lack of a better term, genetic and chemical freak in the fact that they have built their body to unbelievable proportions and still remain a very attractive female. I have had tiny fetish models. All of them have their own body positivity, but I think if you asked every single one of them, including former pro wrestler April Hunter, does the body positivity work for them gaining connections? And all of them would tell you in some sort of way, it actually keeps people away because they think we're unapproachable. So I asked this question, is body positivity, being confident in what you have, sometimes a detriment because other people don't know if they're positive or negative about it? Well, the first thing you get to anytime you have this kind of discussion is how are we defining terms? So your use <laughs> that is a huge part of it. Your use of body positivity there in, is indicating the lens of how positive or negative people feel about their own body. Mm -hmm. But for me, the larger conversation of body positivity is, yes, it, it needs to address the needs and wants of an individual, but it's a larger social conversation about mm -hmm. what we consider normal, what we consider attractive, what beauty ideals we're holding up. Um, and what the the function, what we're assessing the function of our bodies as in a space. So mm -hmm. like is movement ability or physical ability, the thing we're looking at is um, the ability to, to rock a corset or the tall stompy boots or the what have you, the thing that we're looking at. Is it, can someone pull off an androgynous enough look to be both a sissy and you know a leather puppy uh, so body positivity is much broader than just how one feels about one's own body it's about the kinds of bodies that are valuable in society and in our society in particular we are very ableist and we are very fat phobic i think people expressing confidence in their own body is a positive thing from a mm -hmm. mental wellness standpoint, and also from a modeling standpoint. There are uh, ways to do that that make you an asshole, absolutely. But I don't think someone's uh, intimidation response or their own, well, I don't know if I agree with you about how you see your body response is necessarily a negative about having self-confidence in your body or your appearance. I do think that you know, if you're getting a lot of that kind of response, you might want to take a look at the ways in which you're expressing that, because mm -hmm. it, it might just not be the case that it's like, whatever, they're just jealous. Other women are always like this with me or, or what have you. Um, but I don't think, I don't think being mindful of your tone or the setting is the same as needing to not express those things. And I'll use a, a personal example. Um, when I was growing up, I struggled a lot with body dysmorphia, where which is uh, has to do with viewing your body as other than it actually uh, presents in in objective reality, if that's such a thing. And uh, I thought I was just hugely fat, and I would bemoan my frustrations around this around people who um, who were actually fat or um, other larger bodies that just, they just really did not appreciate me at my size expressing those things. And I absolutely get that. I probably sounded like the world's hugest asshole. Mm. Now, does that mean that I'm not allowed to take any space about my feelings about my fat or my weight or what have you? No, absolutely not. But I, you don't get to pick who you unload on. Mm. You need to make those choices as a choice and to have consent of others involved. 
Um, another component within what you said is this idea that others have a have a right to make an assessment on our appearance. And certainly if you're a model or a bodybuilder in competition or et cetera, you've set yourself up for a scenario where you're agreeing that there are judges and there are people assessing. But when I'm walking down the street and somebody generalizing here, usually some man <laughs> stops me to tell me what he thinks of my tattoos, I did not ask him for that opinion and I don't want it. Mm. So that's another component. I will follow that up by asking, when is it appropriate to give someone a compliment if people may feel that way? So I, I actually do a whole workshop series on consensual complimenting. But to sum up the main points of it, um, number one, you want to give someone a compliment uh, in a space, especially if it's a stranger, in a space where uh, they are able to end or leave the interaction easily. You don't want to give someone a compliment while they were are actively in your dentist chair, for example. You also want to compliment something that is an intentional choice. So complimenting someone's um, great fashion sense or if they have fabulous colored hair like I do, the colors of their hair, uh, those are appropriate compliments. Inappropriate compliments would be, you know, wow, you've got such a juicy ass or something like that. It's great to, to, to be told you have a juicy ass when you're comfortable with the person delivering that, which is not likely to be a stranger on the street. Uh, so those are really the two big areas that I encourage people when complimenting strangers to consider that a compliment is not a requirement for an extended conversation. The best compliments in those scenarios, if you're genuinely wanting to make someone feel good and leave it, is to give your compliment, preferably not by shouting. You'd be amazed at how many times someone just has to tell you something and, and shout it at you, um, which can be really jarring, even if it's a nice thing. Um, and, to, to, and to leave, to leave, you know, just, Give the compliment and go, best way. And compliment people on things that they are at choice about. You also have to be aware of various areas of cultural sensitivity and whatnot. Um, and that people ha can have very personal meanings behind their piercings and their tattoos and that they don't owe you the story of that just because you happen to admire a piece. You can invite people, absolutely. but. You want to give a lot of room, particularly if you're commenting on someone's body who you don't know. And with people you do know, I do an exercise with my students of this class around asking people what area they would like to be complimented on. And this is tricky for people because many folks will find, one, they've never considered that and it feels weird to ask, ask someone about a specific thing or maybe they struggle to find a specific thing that they want to be complimented on. And two, um, there's a sense that if it wasn't just completely uh, thought up by the complimenter for the complimentee uh, all on their own, then it's not a genuine compliment. And the truth is, just like we all have different love languages and different ways we like to engage in kink play and ways we like to be touched, we have th different things that we want validated and affirmed to make us feel good. And we can really fall into the trap of giving someone the kind of compliments that we would want to receive. And maybe there are other things they'd let, you know, maybe they get told all the time how wonderfully patient and this, that, and the only thing they are. And actually what they want to hear is that they're smoking hottie and, you know, you'd love for them to step on you, but you don't know if you don't have that conversation. And I was going to ask you specifically, and you brought it up there, if you are complimenting a role of their personality, such as kindness, patience, ability to communicate beautifully. Those are great compliments. You can't really give those to strangers though. You have to give those to people that you know, not to cut you off, sorry. Please continue with your no, question. No, that makes sense. <laughs> that answers my question. Yeah, those are the most meaningful compliments I find. Not that you should never give looks-based compliments, mm -hmm. but 
you know, if people have choice about what they wear, they absolutely have choice about how they behave. And letting someone know that you really appreciate some component of how they move through the universe is, is really nice and can spark a lot of um, feelings of connection and joy. Finishing up the body positivity, I would argue or bring up the point that a person can be considered by 99% of the world as a beautiful human being. But if their heart isn't beautiful, they can be seen as ugly. Is that a difficult one? Well, it's, it's a sentiment that I agree with. I don't know how well it interlocks with the body positivity realm. You can think you have everything together but if that heart doesn't radiate that energy, you can still come off in a very ugly way. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. I always love talking to you because you challenge <laughs> me on everything. And that's one of the reasons why I love having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I just love nuance. I feel like we are, I, I feel very starved of conversational nuance about a number of the topics that I just really enjoy geeking out about. So let's talk next as we spin the wheel about ethical <laughs> non-monogamy. Oh, okay. I have a pet peeve that I want to start with while you yes. formulate your question, if I may. Polyamory is a specific kind of ethical non-monogamy. Polyamory is not the word that describes all ethical non-monogamy. This drives me absolutely up the wall. So I just want to assert that right out of the gate as we move on to this topic. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> ethical non-monogamy to me, as I have come to learn it, is the ability to allow others to explore their love with more than one person with the consent of all involved. Is that a close definition or did I miss the nuance there, Phoenix? It's an interesting definition. I wanna highlight that you use the word allow, which perhaps indicates some submissive tendencies if I were to psychoanalyze you, because we don't really, <laughs> We don't really, ideally, we're not allowing others in relationship. We're, we're hopefully all uh, whole human beings on our own. And the way that these ethically non-monogamous arrangements work at their most healthy capacity is if people have boundaries, which are about themselves and what they want to participate in. And they communicate clearly around those boundaries and expectations and they can make agreements with their partners. But if you're coming in with a, with a list of rules that someone has to follow to be allowed to be in relationship with you, mm -hmm. that's not really honoring them as a whole person. And the allow model, which does accurately describe dynamics that are an intersection of ethically non-monogamous dynamics and uh, DS and MS and et cetera, power exchange dynamics. Yes, that's an allowing situation. Mm -hmm. But for all other types, you are not allowing your partner to do this thing. You have an agreement, you have a open relationship or a swinging relationship or a polyamorous relationship or a um, anarchistic relationship or the, one of the many flavors available within ethical non-monogamy. And that's the relationship that you have, or maybe that's even the romantic identity, the romantic orientation that you feel most deeply closely connected to in terms of your own personhood. But, but there's nobody allowing anyone to do anything. That's a very possessive, very um, dyadic couple, my partner is my property, sort of lens to look at it from. I do like that you said ability because very often people also look at ethically non-monogamous relationships 
as a doing and an activity. Sometimes people in cert within certain subsections of this will say that they're in the lifestyle or they've been lifestyle swinging or lifestyle this for X amount of time. Um, and that is part of these relationships, but it's also for a lot of folks, a feeling and an identity and a capacity. And I don't think that someone who is say polyamorous who happens to be dating monogamously at for some period, say because COVID, um, stops being a polyamorous person. They're just currently engaged in a monogamous relationship. They are still polyamorous. And so I think that difference between identity and desire and behavior, which you see so commonly discussed within other identity arenas, um, absolutely applies within ethical non-monogamy types. I'm going to ask you a question from a very personal perspective and just totally admit that I don't know. I had a friendship with a polycule, a foursome, that the couples were married to each other, but everything went in total intersections. So they were, they were a quad. They were a quad. When this went on, I started to see little problems that they were having with each other. And to me, it felt like a game of Jenga. <laughs> Just like you would have in a man and woman or two people together in a monogamous relationship, and I don't mean to just put it in man and woman terms. Yes, you'll have difficulty there, but that's one person affecting one person. When this quad started having problems, it was like looking at a game of Jenga, waiting for it to all topple down and wonder if any of them could get through it. When you are in a quad like that, what is the mindset you have to have to be successful in that? Because as a person who's been monogamous most of his life, I just don't understand it. <laughs> um, well, I will say that I've never been in in just a quad, but I have been in in many triads and some Vs and poly networks and poly families. And at my sort of max poly family size, I was in a, um, a five person poly family. That was our sort of our primary unit um, with two outside relationships added to that. So there were seven adults involved in this relationship and five of them lived together and shared a bed and shared finances and pet responsibilities, et cetera. Um, it's a friend of mine who really loves video games says that polyamorous relationships are like doing uh, the relationship game on hard mode. <laughs> <laughs> and there is complexity added by having more people involved in your relationship. But the foundational bits that make for really healthy, happy, ethically non-monogamous dynamics are, are the same as what would make for a really happy, healthy monogamous dynamic with like a couple little tweaks. For example, the ability for people to introspect and reflect and work on themselves and work on their, really be able to pinpoint and verbalize some of their paradigms or some of their values, et cetera, that is essential to healthy ethical non-monogamy. I'd say it's pretty essential to most monogamy as well, but you can kind of get along without it for longer than you can in a, in a ethically non-monogamous scenario. The other thing that's super, super crucial is community. When you are having any kind of relationship that is not the cultural dominant norm, when you're having kinky relationships, when you're having queer relationships, when you're having non-monogamous relationships, it is essential to have some corner of your life where you are able to work through challenges you're having, 
share successes and joys because you're not going to get that space out in the world. And it's really impactful on the, on multiple areas of well-being and the health of a relationship. If you feel like you're sort of in this siloed isolation bubble where, yeah, your mono friends are pretty cool with it. You can't ever talk to them about problems with any of your partners because they'll say that it's the non-monogamy to blame. But yeah, they're pretty cool about it. Only a couple friends dropped you or won't let you hang out with their partner anymore. So it's not so bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Community is really, really crucial. And I would say building a network of resources, having a therapist that you see or that you have in mind if you need therapy who's affirming um, and you know, somewhat knowledgeable in that area. Having a coach, having a sexuality educator. So often we don't see relationship skills as things that we need to actively develop and build. Um, and that is, I think, wastes so much of the potential yumminess in relationship by just sort of struggling at it until we find something that clicks rather than working to develop the skills and muscles um, that we have toward more uh, nurturing intimate relationships. If Phoenix could become a wizard and be all seeing and all knowing, by the time you are my age, which is 57, would polyamory and ethical non-monogamy be something that would be, quote, normal by the time you're 57? I'm going to say yes, with the caveat that we would also need to deal with um, systemic oppression of various types in order for that to happen. So at this magical point, when I am this 57-year-old wizard and ethical non-monogamy is normalized, we would also have to have, have to have had several major overhauls in terms of how we address healthcare and housing and education and systemic racism. So I think it would, uh, you know, I hope, hey, I hope that we're Moving in that direction, uh, going to throw in a little sidebar pitch that the uh, Voting Rights Act that Congress is currently trying to get going is incredibly, incredibly important. There are 41 states right now where the Republicans are trying to roll back your voting rights, which were already gutted again by the Republicans. So if we're going to have a functional society and a democracy that exists, we really need those kinds of things right now today. And so I encourage people to get involved with their local political campaigns around those things. Phoenix Mandel has approved this message. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to leave us a comment, thought, or have something to contribute to the show? You can now call or text us at the 3W hotline at 513-788-2527. That's 513-788-2527. Or drop us an email at john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. That's john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi, this is Jane Boone, the author of the novel Edge Play. It's a revenge fantasy where the big short meets 50 shades of gray. Only the women wield the whips and the billionaires submit. You can find it at Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle. And be sure to check out my episode with Tara Indiana right here on what women and other wonderful humans want. Thank you. Hi, my name is Lian Yao, and I'm an audiobook narrator who is also polyamorous. I just wanted to let you know about some audiobooks on polyamory I think you might enjoy. You can find Love in Abundance, The Jealousy Workbook, The Polyamory Breakup Book, and When Someone You Love is Polyamorous on audible.com. Just search my name, Lian Yao, spelt L-E-A-N-N-E-Y-A-U. Please also check out my episode on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. It's time to get back to learning about the most important connection of all, 
the one we have with our authentic selves, on what women and other wonderful humans want, presented by Dating Kinky. Let's move on to BDSM. And that is what started this podcast, Dating Kinky, and my journey into kink, which produced this very curious person who started out in the curiosity of how people connect with each other, and now has moved into this person that is curious about what makes people the way they are. I find that kink can open up new worlds to people because when they let go of control in the submissives or bottom side of the dynamic, they allow themselves to be vulnerable. And you and I are both big Brene Brown fans. Has the genesis of the acceptance of vulnerability move forward the role of kink in society now? I don't think it has in in the larger society because the average Joe Schmo on the street is not looking at kink relationships and kink activities and thinking vulnerability is probably not even on the list or if it were on the list it's like number 30 on a list of 30. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, additionally I just want to point out that there is can be quite a bit of vulnerability on the dom side or the top side as well. Mm -hmm. You know if you do a kidnapping scene with someone that you know that they wanted to do you really better hope that they also are clear that they wanted to do that afterwards and that you don't have the police knocking at your door. Mm -hmm. So there's, I think there's vulnerability in different ways uh, from really all angles, both sides of the slash. I don't think, I think the thing that is moving forward an understanding of BDSM in the larger society is more and more people being connected through the, you know, the magic of the internet and, and these great sites that we have, like the Dating Kinky website. More education than ever before in our history being available about BDSM and, and DS and MS and other BDSM related relationships. And this sort of normalizing effect that having it more present as, as um, something that's not deviant necessarily in the public eye is having so for all it's oh i have some strong negative feelings about the 50 shades of gray series strong <laughs> negative feelings but for all its problems and it does not depict bdsm i mean it does not depict healthy relationships at all it's an abusive dynamic just mm -hmm. for the record also terrible writing if you like reading erotica there is much higher quality smut for you to get your hands on and i just really recommend that you give those other authors who know how to write a sentence um a try <laughs> that being said that being said about this light fluffy cinderella fantasy fun it has it it really sparked something in with the housewives of middle america that moved at least an understanding of an acceptance of bedroom bondage or you know weekend bedroom play a little further along mm -hmm. so for that i you know i gotta give it a little bit of a hat tip i i don't think that there is uh i don't subscribe to the whole no such thing as bad publicity i i think that series is also responsible for putting some really damaging ideas about bdsm out into the world but I do think that we are having additional kink-related media in the mainstream and additional conversations around that and that that's positive. With COVID happening as it has, and hopefully we're getting towards the tail end of what I would say the major part of the pandemic, because I think it's going to continue to loom until there is a seismic shift in the way people think. With all the education that has gone on on Zoom, 
with all the ways that people have had these conversations for now months going on over a year. Is BDSM about to have a lack of a better term, renaissance where people are going to be able to experience this new era of BDSM, more educated, more enlightened, with the potential of it being more fun? I mean, one, one certainly hopes so. Uh, as people cast about their their own four walls for activities and dynamics to sustain them in the quarantine times. Uh, I do think more people were brought to the idea of trying this out. And I do think there's a lot of great quality education available. That said, you know, there's a bit of a selection bias in the people that we're talking to about their own personal journey to get here and now at this point in, in COVID land. Um, and, you know, we don't know how many people felt broken by it along the way, or just really didn't know where to go for good information and are still sort of stuck in the dark ages or are totally unfamiliar with uh, what it means to say that something is a BDSM activity or BDSM, uh, a relationship that exists within that realm or to say that someone is kinky, you know, they might say, uh, oh, kinks, like you mean, you know, like paraphilias or, oh, kinky, you mean like those perverts who blah, blah, blah. And uh, I, I think the, I think there's reason for hope, but I don't know if, uh, if kink renaissance is exactly where we're at just now. I mean, it, it, look at some of our major scandals as a country and the focus on stuff that's um, anti-sex worker mm -hmm. and anti-Black uh, Indigenous person of color and anti, like there are so many way, um, ways that people show up in society that are much less controversial than BDSM activities and mm -hmm. kink that people absolutely just cannot get their heads around even though these are optimally you know consenting we're talking about consensual activities between adults that have done some risk management um and and it also gets complicated when you talk about it as separate from sex when i teach about bdsm i always make a point to let my students know that there are you know certainly bdsm activities that are um erotically stimulating. And there are certainly BDSM activities that people combine with sexual activity, but BDSM in and of itself is not an inherently sexual activity. So when you talk to folks who are like, oh yeah, that that deviant bedroom stuff, and you're like, okay, but try on this. What if I were to tell you that this uh, daddy-daughter relationship is actually a um, reparenting exercise in dealing with attachment uh, issues and trauma from not having a girlhood. And this is not a sexual relationship at all. It's a nurturance relationship. They'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Because <laughs> so they think, can't get past the daddy daughter part. Right. And, and because they're just, they, they need the foundation first. I mean, we've just, I feel like as a society, we've just got barely past the idea that vanilla sex can include, you know, some hair pulling and some spanking and maybe some slapping and like, okay, maybe a little choking, but you're getting really wild there. You should see vanilla people's faces when I talk to them about primal play and biting. They just absolutely lose their shit. And I'm just, just talking a little about a little friendly sensual biting. So um, I think that there are some areas where we're making good strides and I'm hopeful and other areas that um, we're really held back by that we do not have comprehensive science-based uh, sexuality education in our country and that we live in a very erotophobic society. 
When we had one of our first conversations, Phoenix, I went down a rabbit hole that I did not realize existed. And that is, and I waited till the end of the episode to talk about this. Oh no. The, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to call you that. I meant to call you this and uh, it takes, it's, it's all about grammar and, and being this old and not being able to understand how I'm supposed to say they and all this and all that. <laughs> and you went in a very lovely way. You made me understand that that is part of the problem. For those of us in the audience, which is everybody else but you and me, <laughs> explain what you meant when I said to you, I'm so sorry, I'm 57 years old, and I'm still trying to get around the grammar of they, and it's still tough for me. And you brought out an amazing point that I want you to share with our audience. Well, thank you. <laughs> Uh, I feel like we talked about it for a while, so I'm just thinking on how I would like to summarize it briefly. The, the pronoun conversation is very polarizing and many people struggle with it. And the thing is, ultimately at its base bottom line, it's about treating each other well and seeing each other as full people. And if you make uh, a mistake on someone's pronouns and you are genuinely making an effort to do better and to self-correct and to um, you know, acknowledge it and move on and not make it be this big, oh, I'm the worst person, this thing and that thing, which makes it about you and not the person who you've just misgendered. If you're, if you're making an honest effort I, I feel like most of the folks I know who are transgender, genderqueer, et cetera, et cetera, and I'm in this, in this bucket as well, will see the effort and appreciate it. We don't expect you to be perfect overnight. But those explanations, which, you know, people get defensive or they feel like that misgendering is not a reflection of who they are and they want to explain themselves, those explanations are number one, not going to make a difference for how we feel about having just been misgendered. Number two, not new information to us. I, I guarantee you every single person who uses they, them pronouns for more than a single day will have heard all of those things. Um, and it really brings the focus and prior priority to the person who has done the misgendering and not the person whose feelings may have been hurt by that. So uh, that's as best as I can summarize it. It's interesting you bring this up though. It's quite perfect uh, because this is the Dating Kinky podcast and with Dating Kinky founder, Nookie, I'm going to be doing a gender 101, sexuality 101 type series that addresses these things and talks about some differences in gender identity labels and sexual orientation labels. And we'll be recording that later this month and you should definitely uh, keep checking the Dating Kinky website for when that's gonna be available. And I didn't plan it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Nookie will be very happy though. Your mission statement talks about making sex education more queer. Mm -hmm. Explain that for me. So when we talk about queering sex ed, um, that, that kind of means two broader things. Number one, it means uh, literally making room for the queers. So having sex education that is not just um, heterosexual, cis-sexist, uh, focused on people who are sexual rather than asexual folks or people who might be somewhere in the in the gray sexual side of things. We're talking about 
inclusion of LGBTQIA plus folks in sex education curriculums. If you can teach a student about, well, when a man and a woman love each other very much, penis and vagina intercourse, you can absolutely also teach them about homosexual intercourse. And I and arguably you should teach them because this is something that is within the range of normal, healthy human ex sexual expression. And it's important for folks to know about. It would save a lot of hurt in the world <laughs> if there were better education on this. So we mean that in the literal sense of increasing information and inclusion. But we also mean that in the, um, in the symbolic sense of when you queer something, when, when people talk about that as a verb, you're sort of maybe taking it a little bit sideways and to the left, or you're using it in a way that it was not intended to be used, as is the case when people use um, household objects as kink toys, and we call those pervertibles. Or you take a big trip over to ye old Dom Depot, although the owners of Home Depot are terrible, don't shop there, um, and you get yourself some, some low cost play items because that's not what they were intended for. That's, that's kinking something. So when you're querying something in a sex education sense, you are expanding, you're, you're working on a more expansive definition of sex. You're working on inclusion of various genders and other identity orientations like your romantic orientation. And overall, just trying to create a more complete picture that honors people's sexual health and sexual rights outside of the very limited scope that most uh, currently available sex education has. So even very, very basic things that could be shifted, like the inclusion of the existence of asexuals when talking to young students about sex education um, would make so many worlds of difference for so many thousands and thousands and thousands of people. As someone who got the basic boys school sex education that came way too late because I had already kind of formed who I was at that point before I knew how it was supposed to work. I still have gone through all my years with sex being a huge mystery. And I kind of resent that a little bit. I have- Sure, that's very natural. I have romantic notions as to what things should be. I have romantic notions of what a queer relationship might be, but curiosity of how it works and realize that I don't know it at all. But realizing that what's right for the people that have not made a choice, but evolved their life and realized who they are in a genuine way. If we all understood how others are and took the time to ask the questions and took the time to understand the differences between each other, we wouldn't be so separate. Absolutely, I agree with that. I will say for, for folks, for you and for folks who are sort of in that, in that same boat, um, It's so, so important to know, like really internalize and know in your heart and in your bones that sex, sexual um, prowess, sexual skills, uh, romantic prowess, relationship skills, all of these things are skills that can be built and knowledge and classes and coaching that is available. And there's this idea that we don't need to learn those things. 
And that if you're with the right person or if you're really great in this one arena, bam, you're good to go on all fronts for every situation you would encounter. And that's just not, that's not reflective of the tremendous variety that we have between us. And when it's great to ask questions, it's great to seek out more information. I will say you want to be careful who you're asking the questions to. For example, it is never appropriate to ask a transgender person what's in their pants, ever. If you're having a conversation with a romantic partner who you're about to have sex with, maybe you might engage on that in a, in a sensitive way in terms of how they'd like to be, have their body touched and how, uh, how you're negotiating that interaction. But that's not a question you just ask a stranger. And there's a lot of assumptions that happen in the area of transition and passing and this and that and the other thing. There's a lot of stuff there. But I'll just say number one, um, skill building in this area is necessary and that you don't have and you don't have to go it alone. And there are a lot of resources available for this. I'm one of them. Um, and number two, uh, Desire to learn and grow in this area is so beautiful. Desire to understand more, awesome. And you just want to make sure that you're safely containering that by keeping in mind that as you're entering new spaces, say going to a dungeon for the first time or checking out a swinging party or what have you, that all of these things have their own etiquette and culture and rules. And it's important to do some, uh, some prep work before you just dive into the dungeon. Maybe go to a munch first or uh, a class at the local sex shop or take a class with Phoenix Mandel, certified sexuality educator, so that you aren't putting too much of the onus for your education on other people. It needs to be a self-generated process. Now we come to the point of the show where <laughs> you are more than welcome to promote anything you would like. Although I think we've done a really good job talking about some of the things that you're doing along the way, but let's talk specifically about some programs or some links that you'd like people to pay attention to so they can learn from you. Absolutely. Thank you. So the main link I want to give folks, just because it tends to have most of my other links inside of it, is my link tree. So it's uh, the address is, you know, HTTPS colon backslash backslash link L I N K T R period E E backslash Phoenix Mandel spelled P H O E N I X M A N D E L. And that's really where you'll find most of the places on the internet that I exist. So my Patreon is there. My Instagram is there, my Twitter is there, I have a LinkedIn, I have all the things. Please uh, come and find me and follow me and, and check out some of my classes on there. Uh, at the time of this podcast airing, we will be in the month of May. I host a monthly sexologist sync up, which is a networking and resource sharing event for sexuality professionals. I would love, love, love to see more BDSM educators and BDSM based uh, sex workers like pro uh, dominatrixes or dom pro dominance, pro submissives, pro switches, uh, folks who do um, kink affirming therapy, et cetera, at these meetings. So they're great meetings. The May one is going to be on Friday, May 14th at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. And my co-host for that one will be the amazing Tatiana King, who is a sexuality blogger and speaker um, and internationally published and really uh, energetic and amazing person. So I, I encourage everybody, if you, if you work in a sexuality-related professional area, and that includes uh, pro doms, pro subs, etc. Please do come join us for that event. And uh, there will be a link in the show notes for that as soon as it's available. Uh, the other big thing I have coming up that I really want to share with folks, and it's a little further out, but the planning is important, let me tell you, is I'm doing with 
Dr. Bianca Loriano of Anti-Up University, a, I'm sorry, Anti-Up uh, Programming, a series of sexual attitude reassessment classes this year. And those are classes that therapists and sex, sex therapists and sexuality educators are required to take. But I would argue that they are important for everyone. And you can take a, they're called SARS. You can take a basic SAR that just covers all the things over three very grueling days. Um, and you can also take advanced SARS that are on a particular topic. So we're teaching an advanced SAR in um, July on non-monogamies. And people will see that and they say to me, don't you mean non-monogamy? But no, I mean, the many types of non-monogamies, there will be a focus on ethical, but we'll talk a little bit about uh, non-ethical, unethical non-monogamy, uh, because there are just so many different varieties and things to understand uh, in different realms with that. It's not just, okay, you got your poly and your swinging and your this. Uh, so that's in July. We'll also be doing an advanced sexual attitude reassessment class on LGBTQIA plus in August and a BDSM focused advanced SAR that I'm especially excited about because therapists uh, really receive so little training on anything BDSM related in October. So tell your friends, tell your therapists, and I hope to see you at some of those later on and certainly at our May sexologist sync up event. Phoenix Mandel, this has been an education in itself. And I always enjoy talking with you. You always make me, and I'm going to say this in a lovely way, doubt myself <laughs> a little bit, but you also inspire me to want to learn more. And I think that's Thank important. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I've learned so much from Phoenix in our talks together. They have indeed shined a brighter light into my understanding of gender and I look forward to more conversations with them and maybe some more projects together soon. That will do it for this edition of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want presented by Dating Kinky. Next week, we visit with a kinky coach, Stephanie Sigler, and then we get you ready for your Memorial Day with two bonus episodes from a world we have not yet walked in. The art of mainstream adult entertainment with a new star and rock and roll babe with a political view, Jamie Jett on Wednesday, and Kaska Akashova, Fleshbot's 2020 best new starlet on a mm -mm May weekend. I'm John, thanking you for being with us. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time and remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. Leave us a message at 513-788-2527. And we invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. We're kinky done differently.